Now we're going to continue to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to start this time from 35, verse 35 through to the end. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, but is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So in this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. And may God bless his word to our hearts today. Uh, this is probably a magazine that you may not be familiar with down here. It's called TV Choice. Maybe you are. Uh, Margaret and I buy it faithfully every week for two reasons. It's a very good comprehensive guide to lots of TV channels that we have access to. That's the first reason we buy it. The second reason we buy it is that it's cheap. So that certainly counts in its favor. In a February edition of that particular magazine, as well as the TV guide, they contain, it contains articles and adverts. And there was an advert for a book which is called Your Life After Death. And this is what it said. The heading of the advert was Answers Life's Biggest Question. And this is what it said. What comes next for you after death? Authored by the ancient discarnate spirit communicator Joseph, this highly spiritual, internationally acclaimed book reveals the wonders, revelations, and evolutionary steps that lie ahead for you. 
Your life after death will provide essential information you'll turn to for comfort and enlightenment time and again. All you had to do was send a check for £16.95 to a place in Burnley and you would get your copy. And I thought, I'm sure there'll be lots of mugs sending off their 1695. Margaret and I were last with you last August when we attended the funeral of our dearly beloved, much missed sister Candace. And Keith gave me the privilege of speaking at the gravesite. It was quite blustery and blowy, if you remember that particular day. And I turned our thoughts to the story of Lazarus, which was found in John chapter 11 and the first few verses of John chapter 12. And I took three simple headings. One was the pain of parting. The second was the promise of resurrection. And the third was the prospect of reunion. And really what I want to do this morning is I want to focus in on resurrection. I want to extract four resurrection truths from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, it's interesting the views that some professing Christians have on the subject of resurrection. Uh, up in Northern Ireland, there's a paper called the Belfast Telegraph, and the religious affairs correspondent is a man called Alf McCreary. And for several years now, his Saturday night page has consisted of him publishing the answers to a questionnaire that he has sent out to people of faith. And uh, back in 2019, the subject who gave their answers was a man called Ernie Ray. Well, Ernie Ray and I went to school together uh, and we played hockey and cricket for the school teams. And then when we left school, we for a number of years played hockey and cricket for the old boys team. Uh, Ernie went on to study for the Presbyterian ministry and for a few years he was a minister in Banbridge. Uh, then he moved across to England and he actually became the head of religious affairs for the BBC. Uh, and during his time in that position, I think for about 20 years, uh, he produced a, a half-hour radio program on Radio 4 called Beyond Belief. Well, as I say, he, he was the subject back in 2019 of the questionnaire. And the question, one of the questions was, do you believe in a resurrection? If so, what will it be like? And his answer was, yes, I do. However, I am completely agnostic about what life will be like. It must involve challenges, triumphs, and failures. An eternity spent worshiping God sounds intolerable. Well, I thought that was an outrageous statement to make. I think in his mind, he limits worship to maybe coming together to sing a few hymns. And he thinks that if you're going to worship God for eternity, you're just going to do that over and over and over again. Well, for a qualified minister, that's a very shallow understanding of what worship is. Certainly, praise plays a part in our worship. But our lives day and daily should be obvious as worship to God. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31 and in Colossians 3 verse 17, the Apostle Paul encourages believers that whatever it is that you're doing, do it to the glory of God. And that is worship. So that was one a peculiar understanding of resurrection. And then in March of last year, the candidate was a young man called Andrew Cunning. Andrew Cunning would be a leading spokesperson for what has uh, come to be known as progressive Christianity. Uh, that's a talk in itself. It's neither progressive and it's certainly not Christianity. But in the answers that this young man gave, he, he laid great emphasis that he was a theologian. 
He'd done a degree in theology, he'd taught theology at Trinity College, and he was doing public theology courses. He stated that he had four sources for theology. One was reason, another was experience, a third was tradition, and bringing up the rear was scripture. Well, friends, once you depart from sola scriptura as the basis of your theology, you're going down a very slippery path. Reason, experience, tradition are all human inventions, if I could put it that way, and they pollute true theology. But anyhow, he was asked, do you believe in a resurrection? And if so, what will it be like? His answer was, I have no idea what the Bible means when it talks about a resurrection. I really don't think a resurrection of the body will make everything okay. Uh, there's a well-known pastor and uh, writer called D.A. Carson, and I like what he said. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. And I certainly believe that in our resurrected bodies, everything is going to be superior to anything that this life offers. My response to Ernie Ray and Andrew Cunning would be simple. Have you never read 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Because it is chock full of resurrection truths. The first one that I want to look at is the fact of Christ's resurrection. It's a fact. I remember not long after I became a Christian, somewhere along the line, the subject of resurrection came up and somebody said to me, there's a book you should read. It's called Who Moved the Stone? It's by a man called Frank uh, Morrison. I think in the chorus of one of the praises uh, we sang, it was talked about the Lord was led behind a stone. Well, on the back of this book, the back cover, it quotes a little bit from the Apostles' Creed, and this is what it says. Convinced that the story wasn't true, Frank Morrison started to write about Jesus' last days, the cross and the resurrection. However, as he studied this period so crucial to the Christian faith, something happened. And in the preface to the book, it says this. This study is in some ways so unusual, for it is essentially a confession the inner story of a man who originally set out to write one kind of book and found himself compelled by the sheer force of circumstances to write quite another. The writer discovered one day that not only could he no longer write the book as he had once conceived it, but that he would not if he could. This man, Frank Morrison, essentially started out to debunk the resurrection. And looking at all the facts, historical facts and so on, he was totally turned around and he became a firm believer in the truth of the resurrection. So the fact of Christ's resurrection and really the first 19 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 deal with that aspect. And uh, in the first four verses, we find that Christ's resurrection is historical. Uh, Paul started off, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And then in the second part of verse 3, he says, How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It's, it's amazing how some people have difficulty understanding what the gospel is. You know, if anybody asks you, what is the gospel? Direct them to the first four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, I have looked at books written by people professing to be Christian and others uh, of other religions, and they have peculiar understandings of what the Christian gospel is. Uh, I remember one time, uh, for research purposes, I bought a book called Creative Ministry. It was by a Roman Catholic priest called Henri Nouwen. And in the book, he talked about the core of the gospel is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's basically a summary of the Ten Commandments. And that's telling people what they must do. But that's not the gospel. 
The gospel is a declaration of what Christ did, how that he died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the fact of Christ's resurrection, it's historical, the first four verses. And then uh, from verses 5 through to 10, uh, Paul lists the verification of that historical fact because he refers to people who saw Christ after he was resurrected. Uh, He was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve, Then he was seen by 500 brethren at once. Many people believe that is when the Lord ascended. Uh, He was seen of James, then the apostles, and of course he was seen by Paul himself. So the fact of Christ's resurrection, first of all, it is historical. But secondly, it is also theological. We have just celebrated the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, And that turns our minds to the essential ingredients, if I could use that word reverently, of the atonement that was made on Calvary's cross. In the daylight hours, the Lord Jesus Christ shed his precious blood to propitiate the wrath of God, to turn away the wrath of God. And the wine, the cup, reminds us of that shed blood. But then in the hours of darkness, He expiated our guilt. He bore the condemnation that rightly should have been ours. He endured the hellish punishment that by right we should endure. So that was the atonement on the cross of Calvary. So the resurrection is not an integral part of the atonement, but it is a vital testimony to the fact that the Father in heaven was satisfied with the offering for sin that Christ made on the cross. Because in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, speaking of Christ, Paul wrote, who was delivered for our offenses, that's his death on the cross, and was raised again for our justification. In other words, that was a demonstration that the Father had accepted the sacrifice of the Son, an atoning sacrifice for sins. Uh, John MacArthur uh, says this about the resurrection. The resurrection provided proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of his son and would be able to be just and yet justify the ungodly. When God would be able to just, he hasn't turned a blind eye to our sins. No, Christ has suffered the punishment for our sins. And when we believe on him, God can then justify us because of our faith in Christ. He justifies us. He perfectly and permanently pardons us from the condemnation that rightly should have been ours. So, as I say, uh, the fact of Christ's resurrection, it's historical and it's theological. And secondly, I want to look at the order and objective of resurrection. And that covers verses 20 through to 49. And these verses in particular are designed to both comfort and encourage believers. Firstly, the order. In verse 20, we say, we read, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. And then in verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. So the order is quite simple. Christ first, and that happened three days after his crucifixion, and then all believers when Christ returns. It's interesting that Christ is referred to as the firstfruits because the Jewish year uh, was full of Jewish festivals. There would have been four in the springtime and then others in the autumn time. And in the uh, feast uh, of first fruits, it happened in the springtime. And it was the third of their Jewish festivals. First of all, they had uh, Passover. Uh, Passover, of course, 
took us back to the time in Egypt when God was going to uh, pass through the land in judgment. The firstborn were going to die. But those who uh, painted the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and little of their house, they were safe from the wrath of God. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So the Passover is a remembrance of the deliverance of the people of uh, God in Egypt when God passed through the land in judgment. The immediate afterwards uh, of uh, Passover uh, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what was that all about? Well, those who had been delivered from the wrath of God would be expected to lead very different lives. They should purge out all the sin in their lives and so on. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was all about. Passover was to do with salvation. Unleavened bread was to do with sanctification. And then following that, there was first fruits. Because if you're saved and you lead a sanctified life, well, one day you're going to die. But the first fruits turns our mind to the glorious truth of resurrection. This is a, a very good little book called Thus Shalt Thou Serve. And uh, it talks about uh, the Feast of Firstfruits. Uh, it was very interesting to study and see precisely what happens. Uh, what it says here, at the time of seed sowing, this would be barley seed sowing, members of the Sanhedrin, now the Sanhedrin was like a sort of 70 member plus one uh, devolved parliament. Uh, it was like the stormant of Northern Ireland when the Sanhedrin did meet uh, and so on. Uh, and, uh, but anyhow, they were devolved certain powers by the Roman authorities. So members of the Sanhedrin, they went out to where barley had been sown in fields and they had three hoops with them. Now, when I talk about three hoops, for some reason, hula hoops come into my mind, if you ever did a hula hoop. But I'm, I don't know whether they looked like that or whether they were bigger or whatever. But anyhow, these members of the Sanhedrin went out into three different fields where barley seed had been sown, and they put a hoop in each field. And then later on, when the barley started to come up, it says uh, three men, each carrying a sickle and basket, would move toward one of the hoops. The three men simultaneously would thrust their sickles into the barley within the hoops and the sheaves would be placed in baskets. These men would then march up to the temple where the bundles would be put together into one great sheaf and handed to the priest. He took the sheaf and waved it before the Lord as a wave offering. So have you got the picture? The barley's been sown in fields. Three hoops have been put out there. When it starts to come up, these men go out with sickles and from each of the hoops, they get some uh, stalks, if you like. They bundle them together, give them to the priest and he waves it in front of the Lord. So what is that all about? Well, the book says the act of waving the sheaf from one side to the other represented the whole harvest yet in the field. In other words, these bits that have been cut and taken, they were a token representation of the full harvest yet in the field. I don't know why you were familiar with the uh, verse in Jeremiah 8 and verse 20, uh, which says, uh, the summer is ended, the harvest is past, and we are not saved. Because what happened was, after the Feast of Firstfruits, and then there was the Feast of Pentecost, and then there was four long summer months during which the harvest would continue to grow in the fields, and then finally the full harvest would be brought in. And so the summer's passed, the harvest is ended, and we are not yet saved. There's another wee book I have called Israel's Holy Days, and it explains it like this. Israel's holy days fall into two groups, those celebrated in the spring and those kept in the autumn. 
These feasts are prophetic. Some have already been fulfilled. The prophetic feasts already fulfilled are those kept in the springtime. Passover and unleavened bread, that was salvation and sanctification, if you like. First fruits, which is resurrection, and Pentecost. Pentecost, the offering at Pentecost was of two loaves. And unlike the first fruits, which is the wheat offering that was uh, waved, to me the two loaves speak of the reality that the gospel is to the salvation of Jew and Gentile alone. Hitherto, there had been a wall of separation, if you like. But now in Christ, we are one. We are united in Christ. And so these pointed symbolically to the harvest that would be ingathered over the summer months. And the church age that you and I are living in equates to the summer time. People are being saved. They're being gathered in. And this will go on until eventually the next feast, which is mentioned in the calendar. What it says, Pentecost closed Israel's springtime festival. After Pentecost, there were four long summer months during which the harvests were reaped. The next holy day was the Feast of Trumpets. So, as I say, the order of resurrection, you have Christ the first fruits. Then it was those uh, who are his at his coming. And this will happen during the church, church age. That is the order. There's a portion of scripture that has always puzzled me. I've never actually heard anyone preach on it. And it's in Matthew chapter 27. And it relates to certain events that happened when the Lord cried, finished on the cross. And in Matthew 27, verse 50, we read this. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of, out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. I don't think I've ever heard any minister preach about the graves being opened, and then these people coming out from their graves after Christ himself was resurrected. Now, in my mind, I have, I suppose, what I might call sanctified speculation. Now, I can't dogmatically say this is it. But you remember there were three hoops in the fields. And there was uh, stalks gathered from each of the hoops. And they were all taken to the temple and bundled together. And they were waved as a token of the resurrection. I just wonder if... One of the stalks from one of the hoops was to represent Christ. Could the other two hoops from which stalks were taken, could they have been symbolized by these saints being raised from the dead around the same time as Christ? In other words, not only was Christ raised, but they too made up the first fruits. Now, as I say, it's sanctified speculation. If it was true, what happened to them? Did they die again like Lazarus? I don't really think that would be the case. But perhaps they ascended around the same time as Christ. We see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. But in my thinking, I think that could be a possibility as to why those people were also raised. But it's not a, a major point, it's just something to, to think about. Anyhow, that's the, the order. And then what about the objective of resurrection? Well, that's covered uh, from verses uh, 42 and 43. Uh, we read there, uh, Paul says in verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. 
It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Well, unlike Andrew Cunning, who didn't think that a resurrected body was going to be of any great value, if you like, I believe our resurrected body is going to be of great value. Uh, it talks about our natural body. Well, our natural body is one that has been tainted because of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, death came into the world and we are all afflicted by the problems caused by Adam's sin. Uh, our body is corruptible. It is subject to sickness and to death. Uh, God willing, in two weeks from tomorrow, I'm due to get my gallbladder removed. Well, I'm thankful that in my resurrection body, I won't have to go through anything like that. Let's put it that way, because it will be incorruptible. So our body is corruptible. It's dishonorable. Shamefully, we still sin. Even though we have been saved and been delivered from many of the sinful tendencies and habits that we had, we're not perfect in that realm. And we have to continually come and confess. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So our body's corruptible. It's dishonorable. It's weak. We face the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have been given armor to protect us in such situations. But sadly, we still fail. Our bodies are weak. And so these bodies, these natural bodies we have, are totally unsuited for the new heaven and the new earth that we read about in Revelation chapter 21. Now, the, the new resurrected spiritual body, it's not something that's ghostly or ethereal. Uh, back in uh, Luke's gospel, uh, after the Lord had risen, there were two what I would call downcast disciples on uh, the road to Emmaus. And someone who appeared to be a stranger to them came alongside and spoke with them. And then eventually when they went into the house, they realized it was the Lord. And so they went back immediately to Jerusalem uh, to uh, tell the, the rest of their companions. And they're meeting with their companions, and all of a sudden, the Lord appears in the midst. This is what we read in verse 36 of Luke 24. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. The resurrected body, it's not a ghostly spirit type thing. It is a body of substance, but it also has special new qualities that will enable it to do things that we couldn't do in this life. You know, I saw a post on Facebook which said, the stone wasn't rolled away to enable Christ to come out. The stone was ruled, rolled away to enable those to go inside and see that Christ was no longer there. The stone would not have held Christ once he was resurrected. He had special qualities, and I believe uh, on the basis of Scripture that we too will have a body of special qualities. And what do I base that on? In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul wrote this, for our conversation, in other words, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile, that is our natural body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious, that is his spiritual body. So the first resurrection truth was the fact of Christ's resurrection. 
The second resurrection truth was the order and objective of the resurrection. The third truth is the mystery of resurrection. And that covers verses 50 through to 57. In verse 51, Paul writes, Behold, I show you a mystery. The word mystery appears 28 times in the New Testament. And Paul was the author of the word on 21 of those occasions. So it was quite an important uh, aspect of his ministry. John MacArthur says the term refers to truth hidden in the past and revealed in the New Testament. So Paul says here, behold, I show you a mystery. Well, I want to point out, first of all, that the truth of resurrection was not a mystery. This is not what Paul is referring to. Uh, when I was speaking at the graveside of Candace and talking about the story of Lazarus, uh, Martha had gone out to meet the Savior, and the Savior said, your brother shall rise again. And Martha nodded in approval, if you like, because I think she would have been familiar with a number of Old Testament passages uh, including Daniel 12, verse 2, which says, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So the truth of resurrection was not a mystery because it is contained in the Old Testament. So if it doesn't refer to the truth of resurrection, what does it refer to? Well, first of all, it refers to the timing of the resurrection. In verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Remember the book that I read said that after Pentecost, four months later, the next festival was the Feast of Trumpets. The Jewish people were familiar with the use of trumpets. They were like big ram's horn chauffeurs, they call them. And those would have been sounded on certain occasions, Maybe one would be used or another would be used and a different tune would be used in the differing circumstances. But one of the uh, purposes of sounding the trumpet was to collect all the people together. And I think this is what is in mind when Paul writes about the last trump. It is the great collecting together of everyone of every age through the resurrection. And uh, again, this is another prophetic uh, festival, if you like. We're living in the church age, which is the summer months where the harvest is still being ingathered. And then when the last day comes, the trump will sound and that will be the closing of the door of salvation. And the summer will be ended and the harvest will be passed. Are you saved? I wonder, could I ask you this morning, we're here together. Are you saved? If the trumpet were to sound now, where would you be in eternity? And you know, we are going to have bodies like Christ because we read, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So the timing is the last trumpet. It's a day of resurrection. It'll be a day of separation of the goats from the sheep and the wheat from the tares. And it will be a confirmation what we read earlier about our bodies. They were stolen, dishonor. They're now honorable. They were mortal. They're now immortal. These resurrection bodies are designed by the one who said in Revelation 21 that we read earlier, Behold, I make all things new. That's a glorious prospect. It really is. As I look out on the world as it is today, I long for that day. 
The only thing is, if there are family members or friends who are not saved, we fear for them. But this world is going through incredibly dark days. I think I read online this morning where the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak, his Easter message was Christian values are British values. What a nonsense. In Britain, the government sanctions the murder of the unborn. They sanction marriage of people of the same sex and gender. They are utterly corrupt in all of their dealings. And he, as a Hindu, has the gall to say that Christian values are British values. Nothing about the Christ of Easter, nothing about Calvary, nothing about sins. Even so, come Lord Jesus should be on our lips day and daily. So we have the fact of Christ's resurrection. Uh, we have the uh, mystery of resurrection. We have the order and the objective of resurrection. And then fourthly and finally, we have the motivation of resurrection. Uh, every preacher is told, if you're preaching a sermon, you must make personal application for the people who are sitting in front of you. Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul himself did it for me in the very last verse of the chapter. He starts off, therefore, and I'm sure loads of preachers have said to you, when you see therefore, it's there for a reason. The reason is it's referring you back to what you would have read just prior to that. And Paul says, therefore, in the light of the fact of Christ's resurrection and the uh, order and objective of Christ's resurrection and in the light of the timing and transformation that will happen at the general resurrection, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So with this sure hope of resurrection for all of us, well then, Paul says, this is how you should be living. You should be steadfast. I don't know if the Boys Brigade is a big organization in the south of Ireland. Uh, I was a member of it uh, in Belfast in my younger years. And the motto of the Boys' Brigade is sure and steadfast. Uh, it's taken from Hebrews uh, chapter 6 uh, and verse uh, 17. And it talks about a great hope that people have. And it says we have this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. In other words, Christians have a sure hope for the future, because our hope is anchored to the one within the veil, that's Christ in heaven. And so if we have the hope, the blessed hope within us, well, we too should be steadfast in all our dealings. We should let people know that we are anchored to Christ who died for us, was buried, rose again, ascended for us, and is coming back for us. So we should be steadfast. We're to be unmovable, which in many ways is pretty similar to steadfast. Unmovable. We should be clinging resolutely to the convictions that we have, the biblical convictions that we have. Uh, we shouldn't be blown about by every wind of doctrine. We should hang steadfastly to Christ and him crucified. Uh, one uh, commentator said, this hope to our souls is as certain as the anchor is to the ship. It is uh, both sure and steadfast. And it is the anchor within the veil that keeps us steady. Even a ship's anchor could be anchored to the shifting sands of a seabed and could drag the anchor. But when we're anchored to Christ, we're not going to be dragged away or around by any false teachings, progressive Christianity, or anything else.
We're living in very atheistic, godless, amoral, intolerant, violent days. We can't close our eyes to it. Violent days. I was reading online, uh, there was a woman murdered in Limerick earlier this week, and the likely perpetrator was arrested up in Belfast. He had taken flight up to there. Absolutely horrible, because I think she was a lady from overseas. And pray for her grieving family. Whatever the circumstances were, they have lost a daughter and so on. So these are violent days, and we need to be steadfast and unmovable. And we must believe that there is only one truth. People live today and say, well, that's your truth and I have my truth. No, there's only that truth and it's contained in the word of God. And sadly, the UK, which we're still part of up there, it is increasingly non-Christian. Uh, the Commonwealth Day service that was held recently in Westminster Abbey it included readings, not only from the Bible, but from the Quran, from the, probably the Bhagavad Gita or whatever it was. And I understand that as yet the order of service for the coronation hasn't been printed because they can't agree on it. Uh, I understand that the king-to-be uh, is wanting it to be much more multi-faith. And I think there is opposition to that, and rightly so. But these are the days. These people are not sure and steadfast. They're not unmovable. They will blow around. But anyhow, uh, we have to be always abounding. Uh, I've said over the years uh, in Christian work, there's no retirement and no redundancy. And as my own years keep going, I'm, I'm proving the truth of that. There's no retirement. There's no redundancy. But the glorious hope of resurrection should motivate us to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. The Lord opens up doors of opportunity for us. And sadly, sometimes we, we fail to go through them. And he, he knows our frail, that we're dust. But when he does open them up, do take the opportunity to share a word of witness for the Lord. Because what we do for the Lord will not go unnoticed by him because it says your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6, several times the Lord mentioned about rewards for Christian service. And in Matthew 16, 27, we read this, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. We don't work for salvation. But being saved, we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And we, he has ordained that there are good works that we are to do for him. Late R.C. Sproul said this, A Christian is a person with a burning heart, a heart set aflame with certainty of the resurrection. I think in many ways resurrection is underplayed in our Christian thinking. Yes, we have the Lord's table and we're so grateful for the reality that all our sins have been dealt with at the cross and we sometimes forget about the resurrection but what a glorious hope we have Amen. let me close just like this Matthew Henry a great Bible commentator he said this uh, regarding actually those uh, bodies of the saints that were raised uh, at the time of Christ's resurrection. He said, by virtue of Christ's resurrection, the bodies of all the saints shall in the fullness of time rise again. This was an earnest, a, a foretaste of the general resurrection at the last day when all that are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Notice at the general resurrection, all that are in the graves shall be resurrected, saint and sinner alike. And uh, in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, the Lord himself said, The hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life 
and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, whose writings I absolutely love and think are wonderful, he said this, When men rise again, they will not all rise in the same condition. There will be two classes, two parties, two bodies. Not all will go to heaven. Not all will be saved. Some will rise again to inherit eternal life, but some will rise again only to be condemned. These are terrible things, but the words of Christ are plain and unmistakable. Thus it is written, and thus it must be. So again, I say to you, when the general resurrection happens and if you and I have passed from this scene of time, which will it be for you? Will it be the bliss of eternal life or the horror of eternal condemnation? When Keith was with us last night, uh, somehow or other the talk came up about the Puritans. And I said, um, I'm going to finish what I say tomorrow morning with something that a Puritan wrote. And this is a book called The Valley of Vision, which is a series of prayers by the Puritans. No names of them are given. They're all anonymous. And this one relates to the second coming. So I leave you with these few lines from this man's prayer. O Son of God and Son of Man, thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Thou wilt come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, this natural body a spiritual body, this dishonored body a glorious body, this weak body a body of power. I triumph now in thy promises. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. And I would say amen to that. And as I've already quoted, the, virtually the last words of the book of Revelation are, even so come, Lord Jesus. May God bless his word to our hearts today.